And uh, so that might be a, a new routine for us, and uh, so that, that might help as well. But we're in John 10, uh, 22 through 40, as Don read. And uh, by way of introduction, I wanted to ask you a question. It's kind of a personal one. It deals with conflict. All right, so uh, you probably will be able to think through some uh, illustrations pretty quickly, but I hope you don't land on those for the rest of the service, all right? When was the last time when you were in the midst of a conflict, you thought, I'm not really sure they can hear what I'm saying? That statement usually emerges when there's a bit of frustration. Sometimes it kind of reveals there's a deep concern because you know that words are being spoken, right? The ears are physically hearing words in a sentence, but it does not result in mutual understanding. It does not result in true listening. In fact, have you ever found this to be the case? Sometimes what you're saying Because of the grid through which it is heard, or the filter by which it passes, it only has made things worse. You're saying one thing, and people are hearing a completely different thing. Words can fall on deaf ears, creating even more conflict. It happens all the time. It happens so much that we can have a joke in my family. When I can't communicate, I say, don't worry, I only communicate for a living. And they're like, yeah, we think you'd be better at this. And almost every couple that comes for, you know, some type of counseling or care, whether it's just kind of off the side or whether it's an official meeting, everybody says, I just think we just need to communicate better. That's where everybody starts. Like, if we just communicate better, then our words would be heard. I am now at the point. I met someone in the grocery store the other day. Because as you share a sermon, people walk away with like 20 different ideas, if not 200 different ideas, of what the sermon is about. That I've actually gotten to the point where I say, it's a miracle that anyone listens. Have you gotten to that place in your life? It's a miracle that anybody actually hears you and understands what you're saying so that there is a mutual benefiting from it. Uh, The brokenness of our humanity, part of our sin nature, is that there's this gravitational pull to not really hear what that person is saying and to begin to think about how it impacts me. What are they saying about me? And so when words are spoken and they're received, and they're understood, and they're acted on, I'm at the point now where I say, that's pretty incredible. I'm willing to use the word miracle for it, because it takes a lot of work to build the trust so that communication can take place without having more huge issues. Who hasn't thrown their hands up in the air to just say, maybe it'd just be better if we didn't talk? Maybe silence is what we should do next. I know I've been there. Well, why is that the case? It's because of our hearts. What you feel, what you think, what you believe, all filtered through our hearts. And if that's true in human relationships, how much more true is it in spiritual relationships? Right? I'm talking about your relationship with God, what you believe about the Bible, what you've done with Jesus Christ. How you handle your individual sin issues in the same way, like so what someone is saying can go in one ear and out the other, the same thing can happen with the words of Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you as plainly as I can. Life-giving words 
can fall on hardened hearts and go nowhere. We're in John 10, like one of the best sermons ever. It's, it's, it's read. I mean, all the words of Christ here. And yet, where do they lead? We see the Jews' unending commitment to unbelief. Even as Christ has an unending commitment to his people that he offers here. So life-giving words can fall on hardened hearts, end up going nowhere, but there's hope. Life-giving words can fall on soft hearts and bring comfort for life and for death. And so as we pick back up in the Gospel of John, we were away last week, we had a guest preacher, and, uh, and so now we're back in John 10, and there's this contrast that's being developed between those that believe and those that don't believe. There are some that hear the words of Jesus, and they respond with joy. There's others that hear the words of Jesus, they get angry. Some embrace his teaching, while others want to reject him. Some fall down to worship him, and others pick up stones to kill him. Our text today makes it very clear. Here is the point of the sermon. One sentence, right? Faith family, here it is. It's a miracle that anyone listens to Jesus. It's a miracle that anyone listens to Jesus. We're going to look at that by answering three questions. What's our problem? Why is it so hard to hear? Why is it so hard to hear? What's the solution, right? What's the solution? How do we hear, right? And what will you do? What's our problem? What's the solution? What will you do? First, the problem. What is the problem? Well, Jesus has made a splash by John 10. And uh, it's going around that maybe Jesus is the Christ. And if you're new to church, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title that he is fulfilling all of what the Old Testament was pointing forward to in the hopes of their future king. And so there's this news going around that maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And these religious leaders are at their breaking point. They want clarity from Jesus. They're saying, you know, would you just be clear to us on who you are? Now, you might be asking that same question this morning. Who are you, Jesus? Would you just be clear? And you might be coming from a position of, I just really want to know. But we're going to see in this passage that they do not want clarity so that they can confess Jesus is the Christ. They want clarity so that they can condemn him. That has been their stated goal since John chapter 5, when he healed a man on the Sabbath and broke one of their religious rules. We know that that word has spread. Remember John 9, John 9, 22, um, when his parents of the blind man don't want to say how he was healed, they're afraid because of why. Verse 22 says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess that Jesus be the Christ, he's going to be put out of the synagogue. So they really don't want to know who he says he is. In order to confess that and to worship him as the Messiah and follow him, they just want to use it to condemn him. So let's go ahead and see now in John 10, starting at verse 24, the Jews' unending commitment to their unbelief. In verse 24, uh, they say, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's a good question. It's a question that matters as much today as it matters back then, right? Who is Jesus? It's a question that will clarify the truth of Christianity. If you could just start with that, right? Who is Jesus? Then you would know if Christianity is true or false. So what could we say 
Well, if you're our guest and you're looking into Christianity, here's a great place to start. Notice first the historicity of Jesus. Do you remember how our story began here in verse 22? Remember verse 22? A long, long time ago in a land far away. That's how it started, right? Fairy tales? Legends? No, let's look at 22. Listen to it for real this time, noting the real people, the real places in real time. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. We're not talking about legends or fairy tales in those verses, are we? Right? We get this sense that this is an eyewitness account from John. He was there. Jesus is a real historical figure. Solomon's colonnade is a real place that you could go and visit and check and reference with other things. And we get this time frame. It's during winter, during the Feast of Dedication. It's a real time. But it's still a miracle that anybody would actually read this and think this is an eyewitness account and not the stuff of legends and fairy tales. Second, we have the words of Jesus. In verse 25, we have his response. He answers uh, their question of tell us plainly with some very simple words. I told you. Come on, tell us plainly. I already did, right? I'm not, you know, hiding in a corner. I'm not being elusive. I mean, he's been out there the whole time telling them again and again who he is. He says in John 4, I'm the living water. He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, he said that he's the light of the world, right? In this passage, he says, I am the son of God in 1036. I am the shepherd king. John 8, 58, I am am he. Time and time and time again, Christ clarifies who he is. Probably can't get any clearer than in our passage this morning in John 10, verse 30. Everybody find verse 30? Christ says, I and the Father are one. You couldn't ask for more. I mean, that that is just a plain sentence. Jesus says that he and the Father share in the same divine identity. It's not been redacted later, The apostles who needed to keep their power, needed to believe that Jesus was God so they could have power over the church. No, this is actually what Christ says about himself. This is Jesus' own words. But it's still a miracle that anybody would actually believe what Jesus has to say about himself. So we've seen history. We've seen his words. Christ goes on to the third thing. He says, why don't you consider my works? Look at verse 25. Jesus says, look what I have done. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. The works that Christ has done, we refer to them as miracles. But John, throughout his Gospels, as you remember, he calls them signs. They're called signs because a miracle might just make you think that Christ does these things as kind of raw displays of power, like walking on water just to show off or just to get there faster or to miss traffic, right? I mean, uh, that's not what he's doing. And so like signs on the highway, they are there full of meaning to point you beyond the actual demonstration of power itself. And so all of these signs that Christ has done, they are there to point you to he's fulfilling what the Old Testament said would happen for the Messiah to come. You should be able to read these signs and see that the Messiah is here. Well, what were some of those signs that Christ did? He changed the water into wine in John 2. 
with nothing but a word. He heals the official son in John 4. He's healed the paralyzed man in John 5. He's fed 5,000 in John 6. He walks on water as the Lord of creation. And he does the calling card of the Messiah in John chapter 9 for the first time ever. Someone born blind, he heals. And they walk away seeing. And Christ says, listen, if you don't listen to my words, believe my works. They're all just pointing to who I am. But as our family says, it's like failure to connect the dots. You know, they're just not quite connecting all those things. And again, it's just a miracle that anyone would actually believe. Because by the end of all of this, these Jews are ready to kill him. Look at John 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him again. Instead of falling on their knees, admitting their need of him, confessing him as the Christ, all they want to do is to pick up stones to rid themselves of who he is. Their actions, once again, confirm how far away they really are from Jesus. Jesus says, right, you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. You don't belong. As they get ready to stone him, Christ in verse 32 asks them, well, for what good work are you going to stone me to do? Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answer in verse 33, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. But what John has been proving, and his whole purpose in his book, over and over and over again, is that Jesus did not make himself God. No, Jesus was God, and he made himself a man. That's the miracle that's in this passage. So Jesus buys some time. In verse 34, he quotes Psalms 82, verse 6. And I love his response here because you really get to see some rabbinic jujitsu. Pastor Pat does jujitsu all week long, but here you see Jesus just sparring and taking their aggression and just kind of spinning it on them because what he's going to say here is kind of how you can answer as harmless as a dove but wise as a serpent. Jesus says in verse 34, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? That's a really obscure passage. It's a really difficult psalm uh, about God's judges, but here's the principle. If the Bible, the Bible that you hold to, the Bible that you believe in, even if there is this one kind of really aloof reference in which God describes human beings because of the role they play as gods, because they're going to be the judges over the nation, so in the way that they judge, they are like God because they have that authority to judge. If your Bible calls people gods, then what's your problem with me calling myself the Son of God? It's already there in Scripture. No, he's not coming short out and saying, I am God, okay? But he's just trying to maybe, I think, buy some time so they actually don't stone him right there and just to get them thinking. Then he gives them, in the remainder of our passage, in verses uh, 36 through the end, another opportunity to believe. Isn't it so gracious? The people that Christ 
uh, is being threatened. His life is being threatened. Here he gives him another invitation to believe. Look at 37 through 39. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they thought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Making another appeal to those who do not believe. And he's asking them, if you don't want to believe my words, why don't you believe my works? Will they believe based upon the works themselves? That's the question. But by the end of it, we see that they just want to arrest him again. The Jews, unending commitment to unbelief. They want to silence him. They want to stifle his influence. They don't want to believe themselves. And they certainly don't want anyone else to believe. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get to John chapter 11. Listen to John eleven forty eight. They reveal more of their hand there. John eleven forty eight. After the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders say this in John eleven forty eight: If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come away and take our place and our nation. All the way through this passage, we see the Jews' unending commitment to unbelief. Doesn't matter what Jesus says, doesn't matter what Jesus does. No matter how much they are presented with evidence upon evidence upon evidence, they just don't want it to be true. A perfect example of this, I'm sure many of you have already heard before, but I just love it. It is called the dead man walking illustration, and I just want to kind of show you how it proves our point here. Imagine that you had a friend who actually thought he was dead. Now, he's alive, but he thinks he's dead. And you're concerned. You're concerned for your friend's mental health and his well-being, and you're going to try to convince your friend that he's not really dead. There's a lot of ways you could go about doing this, right? So you think, man, how can I convince him that he's really alive and he's not dead? And so you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give him the three greatest books that medical science has ever kind of produced. This is what the world believes, all medical science concedes, that these are the best three books. And you get them those three books, and you show them that each of these books say that dead men do not bleed. Okay? You say, now, have I proven to you that medical science shows you that without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that dead men don't bleed? And your friend says, yes, I understand. I, I see that. Fine. You say, give me your hand. And you slice it open, and he begins to bleed. And his eyes bug out of his head. And you say, are you amazed? He goes, yes, I'm amazed. You say, do you see what this proves? Yes, I see what this proves. What does it prove? It proves that medical science is wrong. Dead men do bleed. <laughs> now, maybe you've heard that before, but this is kind of the analysis that Jesus is giving us about our spiritual hearts. The problem is not the external evidence. The problem is the internal filter through which we hear it by and integrate it by. There's enough evidence to believe, but the same data that will prove one thing to one person can be the same data, depending upon your authority, will prove something completely different. The Bible says this, no one is neutral when it comes to believing in Jesus Christ. We all have a bias to not want it to be true because we want to be our own authority. And we're scared stiff that if Jesus is who he says he is, that we would lose control of our life. 
And so we come to these texts filled with life-giving words, but they can fall on hardened hearts and go nowhere because we want to be the authority of our own life. So my friends, interpreting the data is not as simple as you might think. You interpret the data all in line with who you hold to be the ultimate authority over your life. So let me just ask you, who's in charge of your life? Who do you have as your authority over your life? If you decide ahead of time, the one thing I'm never going to consider is that Jesus Christ is the Lord and I have to lose control and give my life to Him, well then, you're going to look at all this evidence and say, oh, it's not good enough. You're going to interpret the data in light of what you already believe to be true. And so the result is that life-giving words, validated by life-giving works, can fall on hard hearts and go nowhere. The problem really isn't the plainness of Jesus' words. The problem is the hardness of our own hearts. Their hearts were turned against Him. Their ears are closed. I think the application for us is this. You'll never really hear Jesus if you don't want to listen. If you don't want to go where the evidence leads you. And there are many ways that the enemy keeps us deaf. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, here's a list of things that I think kind of prevent you from believing this as true. Things that I've seen in my own life, things that I've talked to with a number of us, consider these uh, maybe why it's preventing you as a barrier to believe in Jesus Christ. I think the number one reason why we're deaf to the gospel, the enemy uses pride. Pride keeps us from acknowledging our need of Jesus. Let me just ask you, are you refusing to acknowledge your need of help? Pride will make you deaf. Comparison. Comparison makes us deaf because we balance the scales by looking at other people and saying, you know what? I'm better than them. I must be doing okay. Power. Are you struggling to embrace the humility that it would take, the different agenda that is required, not to follow your own agenda anymore, but the Lord's? Control. Are you afraid of losing control this morning? That Jesus will ruin your life if he runs your life? And affections. Things that you've set your heart on that you love could be a person, a relationship, could be a sin. Affections that we have for our present life that we're just not willing to give up for our future, eternal life. There's many more. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask you, what do you think is your barrier to belief? And I would encourage you to talk with the friend who brought you and ask them, hey, before you were a Christian, I know that you brought me to church, you invited me, but before you were a Christian, what was your barrier to belief? What is that sort of you're in the way for Jesus that he had to break through in order for you to finally hear the gospel? I remember being a Bible teacher down in Virginia and uh, sharing the gospel, I thought, daily with students. And then we'd go away to a leadership weekend. There'd be a guest speaker, and he was just always better than I was. And the kids would come back and say, I heard the gospel for the first time. And you're like, what? We've taken notes on the gospel. We've shared the good news. You've memorized an outline. How is it that you just heard it now? And at first, right, they were communicating words, but my heart did what? It filtered it through, I must be a horrible Bible teacher. 
words being spoken, ears physically hearing them, did not rejoice that these children were receiving Christ, but thought, what does that say about how bad of a teacher I must have been? It's a miracle that anyone listens. You know, when I was in high school, the miracle that Christ had to do in my life was that he had to overcome two of these barriers, not just one. So if you look at that list of pride and comparison and control and power and affections, I probably could tick all those boxes. I'll just share with you two. Pride. I was a straight-A student, firstborn, that had a fear of my dad, and I obeyed everything he said, and I did not want to get in trouble. And I had pride that I was not a rebellious teenager. Coupled with comparison. Because, you know, these straight A type people, they like to look at everybody else. So what did you get on your test? How are you doing with your mom and dad? And so in comparing myself with other people, I thought I was good. Faith family, have you forgotten the miracle it is that you heard? Just think about it in my life. What's the miracle that going to a Christian school in 6th grade through 12th grade, having chapel three days a week, and yet all the way from 6th grade up through 12th grade, thinking that I was all set because I was good and a lot better than my other classmates who were hypocrites. After hearing it for that long, you get inoculated to the gospel. And God broke through my senior year, right? said, you're not who you think you are. You're deceived. You're not a believer because you're trusting in your own works, in your own goodness. It's a miracle that a kid who claimed to be a Christian from 7th grade through 11th grade really wasn't. Why do we preach the gospel at Faith Community Bible Church? Because this morning, maybe you think you're a Christian and you're really not. And that might sound like the most mean thing to say, but here's why I think it's loving. Because I'm encouraging you to throw off the false and the counterfeit and to get the real thing that really will transform you by His grace and cause you to live for joy. It's still out there. Well, it's a miracle that anybody believes. I encourage you this afternoon to share with your family the miracle of how you saw and heard God for the first time. Thank God for his miracle of grace. Well, some actually do believe at the end of our passage in verses 40 through 42, unlike these religious leaders in Jerusalem hearing, I think, the best sermon ever, they just don't want to hear these people in the outlying regions. Uh, They hear and they believe. Look at 40 through 42. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. My evangelist friends, John had no sign. All he had was words. No power, no persuasion technique. That's not where our confidence comes from in our evangelism. The people need to hear the word of God. So why do we pass out Bibles that bring your Bible to school day at Concord High that are just plain old vanilla gospel of John's? Because they need to hear the Word of God. By hearing the Word of God without any power displayed, they're going to say, everything John said about this man is true. And you could hear that today and believe. You could hear 
that everything John the witness said about this man is true based upon his words. And to those that do believe, those that hear those words, these life-giving words bring comfort for life and for death. In comparison to these Jews who have an unending commitment to unbelief, let's just look up in closing for a couple of moments here. Jesus' unbreakable commitment to his own people. Consider how these words would fall on those who actually do believe. These words are full of amazing promises. Let's just start at 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. A couple weeks ago, it was about the quality of life that you have as a believer. It's eternal. He came to give you an abundant life. This week, the emphasis is on the security of the life that you can have if you are a Christian. You will never perish. No one will ever snatch you out of the Jesus' hands. There is no thief. There is no robber. Jesus is your protection. Nothing shall defeat you because it's all God's plan. And it's not just Jesus. It's also the Father. Him and the Father together protect you and he and the Father are one. Your whole life, everything depends upon your relationship with this Jesus, this good shepherd. If you belong as his sheep, your future is full of hope because of the promises that he makes, promises that extend beyond the grave. Everything is because of Jesus. Everything is gives glory to him. Why do you hear his word? Because of Jesus. His sheep will hear his word. Why do you follow Jesus? Because of Jesus. Why do you have eternal life? Because he gives it. Why will you never perish? Because it's his to give. Why, why do you have confidence that you're going to persevere to the end? All because of Jesus. If you're a believer this morning, it means that nothing can penetrate the vault of Jesus' love for you. No sin, no trial, no temptation, not even the devil himself can change the fact that you belong to Jesus. I just want to assure you that it's not your discipline, not your strength, not your ingenuity, not your knowledge. The foundation of your Christian life is a simple promise. You belong to Jesus. Your hope is in this glorious truth. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hands. Only two responses. Either you will believe or you will bury the evidence. Believe or bury the evidence. Two possibilities. Which way will you go? The way of bias or the way of belief? If you're here as a non-Christian, just ask you to pray to God. God, would you soften my heart? Give me ears to hear. May these life-giving words not fall on hardened hearts and go nowhere. But may these life-giving words fall on soft hearts and bring forth comfort for life and for death. Because it's a miracle that anyone actually believes. Praise God for that miracle of hearing today. Well, we're going to send Pat and Martha off to encourage some missionaries in Italy. The Aguirres are missionaries long time in Umberta di Italy. I want to bring Pat and Martha up. Teresa, do you want to join them, friends? Okay, you're all right. Um, they're going to be going there to care for them, care for them in a, in a, in a hard work uh, in Italy. 
And I pray that maybe some of these words of Christ's assurance and confidence of his plan would bless the Aguirre. So Pat and Martha, share about what you're doing, and then we'll pray over you and send you out.